Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, asking for your help during this Lenten and Easter season. Support from our listeners is vital and allows us to bring you and many others high-quality spiritual programs like the one you are listening to now. It also assists us in our outreach to areas around the globe, touching literally millions of souls via the World Wide Web. Our highly rated free Discerning Hearts app allows you to access over a thousand audio files as well as video content now available on our expanding YouTube channel. We've been able to offer online spiritual seminar retreats with Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and Deacon James Keating. The heart of our mission is to help foster authentic spiritual formation for the seeking soul so they can fully encounter the living Christ and share in his mission of healing hearts and spreading the good news to the world. Please, won't you help us to continue this important work of evangelization by donating today to DiscerningHearts.com. The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club with Vivian Dudro, myself, Father Fessio, Joseph Pierce. We continue our discussion of this phenomenal book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. In the last session, we took art in liturgy, and this section is music. And of course, Carlo Rascopo Bennett was a tremendous connoisseur or amateur a lover of great art and great music, he played the piano himself. And uh, I thought that chapter on art was just a great little tour de force. Mm-hmm. But as far as the liturgy is concerned, the art and architecture, which are part of the Mass, are really not of the Mass itself, but of a surrounding Mass. Whereas now we're getting into music, music is part of the Mass. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mass, in part, is sung. Uh, and so music is even more integral interior component of the liturgy than art and architecture. So let's get started. I mean, we may have to divide this chapter up into two sections. I don't know, because there's so much in here uh, and, and so much to me anyway that we need to reflect on about what kind of music we should have when we celebrate Mass mm-hmm. and what whether contemporary music is consistent with liturgical music or not. He gives some principles here for those. So, again, how does he start when he wants to discuss something? He starts with the Bible, sacred scripture. And that's what he does with music here. So page 150, I think, in your book, 136 in mine, a few lines down, he says, when man comes into contact with God, mere speech is not enough. So God is so transcends us, so we don't just want to talk. Uh, a couple lines down, Indeed, man's own being is insufficient for what he has to express. And so he invites the whole of creation to become a song with him. What a beautiful sentence that is. That, you know, God is so glorious and so ineffable and so above us and so transcendent that we, words aren't enough, we want our whole being. Not just our being, we want all of creation to be him to God. I don't know. Uh, So what does he do? The bottom of the page there, 
Last line, in the biblical account, the people's reaction to the foundational event of salvation, which is the liberation from Egypt, is described in this sense. Quote, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, close quotes. But then follows a second reaction, which soars up from the first with elemental force. Quote, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, close quotes. And that is the first liturgical song in the Bible, chapter 15 of Exodus. That is phenomenal. And then I, I want to go to the next page, 152. Mm-hmm. But stop me if you want. Uh, bottom of that page there. The definitively new song has been intoned, but it's still all the sufferings of history must be endured, all pain gathered in and brought into the sacrifice of praise in order to be transformed there into a song of praise so that he talks about music in the between time, mm-hmm. between shadow and reality. And because we're waiting for the final consummation, the final glory, uh, that our music must incorporate also the, the struggle that we're, that we're having. Uh, and then he says, next paragraph there, here then is the theological basis for liturgical singing. We need now to look more closely at its practical reality. So what has he done? We have to sing to give creation back to the Lord. We find the, the pattern for that in sacred scripture, Exodus 15. And now we're going to look at the what this really means in terms of practice. So on page, well, let's see, continue that. In addition to the various witnesses that are found throughout the scripture, to the singing of the individual and the community, as well as to the music of the temple, the book of Psalms is the proper source for us to rely on here. He says, because it lacks musical notation, we are unable to reconstruct the sacred music of Israel. I have to correct him here. Mm-hmm. I'll tell the story. I think I told the story already once, but I'm going to tell it it's again. It's worth repeating. Because it, it fits right here. It struck me years ago that, well, yeah, the Psalms, they're songs, right? What did it sound like? And so from my office in the old Ignatius Press building, I could see Temple Emmanuel here in San Francisco. And I called the rabbi and said, hey, rabbi, uh, do, do you sing the Psalms? No, we don't sing them. We recite them. Well, you know what it sounded like when they did sing them? No, but call this number, 1-800-Judaism. You know, I called the number. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think he still called it. It's a Jewish information service in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They said, we don't know either, but call this rabbi in Manhattan. So I called him, and uh, it was a long conversation. But finally he said, well, yeah, we, of course we know what it sounded like. It, it sounded like a Gregorian chant. You got it from us. Mm. And so I called Professor Bill Mart, a wonderful uh, Catholic professor at Stanford here, music department. I said, is that true? He said, yes. He says, the, the ancient psalm tomes were not created or invented or composed by Pope Gregory the Great. They're called Gregorian, as for him. Uh, you know, they're organized by him. And there, there are some new settings, all right, but they had the roots in Jewish psalmody. Mm-hmm. So when you are singing uh, the psalms to Gregorian chant, especially some of the, the, the primitive modes, well, not necessarily primitive modes, but the older modes, uh, you're as close as you can get to the psalm. So we actually do know somewhat what it sounded like. And now we know what it sounded like when Jesus himself Exactly. And if you do it in Hebrew, as I like to do, I'm like Psalm 63, I'll sing it for you, the first verse. Elohim Eloi Ata Ashakareka. Hmm. Oh God, my God, you are. I long for you. 
like I'm longing for the dawn, you know. Jesus sang that. Mary sang it. So I might have done this already, but I'll do it again. Uh, I recommend that, you know, if you want to have a little hobby, get bored, something like that, just go to the Internet, look up Hebrew, you know, Hebrew Bible and stuff, and you'll find, get the alphabet, 22 letters, not that difficult. You have an interlinear Bible there. You can actually learn a couple of phrases. That's all it takes, a couple of phrases. You know, we, we say, for example, par excellence, that's French, you know, or Gesundheit, that's German. So you can learn a couple of Hebrew We phrases. also say Alleluia and Amen. That's true. And do. Hosanna. And Hosanna. That's right. <laughs> so we've already, got, we've already got some. At the bottom of that page, 153, the paragraph there. With regard to the scene of the church, we notice the same pattern of continuity and renewal that we have seen in the nation of liturgy in general, in church architecture and in sacred images. So he's he's a man of synthesis, you know, and of and of wholeness. You know, we, we don't have these kind of fragmentary breaking off and being separate from everything else. No, it's all part of a beautiful whole here. Uh, quite spontaneously, the, the Psalter becomes the prayer book of the infant church, which, with equal spontaneity has become a church that sings her prayers. So the, the Psalter is really the, the prayer book and the song book of the Christian community. And it still is the, the spine of the liturgy of the hours that the church prays every day. That's right. And it's one of the beautiful results of Vatican Council II was the uh, renewal and reforming of the Psalter, the breviary, so that uh, it wasn't simply you know, something which monks who spent their life praying could do, but something brought back to the people of God, and especially the two hinges, morning prayer, lauds, and evening prayer, vespers, or compliment night prayer is very, very brief. And I find, I mean, more and more lay people are integrating some of the bravery into their lives, you know? Yes, and, and a great way to do that is with Magnificat, you know, the... Uh the little booklets oh, that yes. that, because yeah. they have actually got an abbreviated form of morning prayer and evening prayer and Compline that's that that makes it much easier for a lay person to follow uh I, it, that that's been a tremendous service to the church yes uh 154 about two-thirds down yes singing the surpassing of ordinary speech is a pneumatic event like Panuma, spirit. Church music comes into being as a charism, a gift of the spirit. It is a true glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, the new tongue that comes from the Holy Spirit. It is above all in church music that the sober inebriation, that's a famous expression of Augustine, uh, sober inebriation of faith takes place. An inebriation surpassing all the possibilities of mere rationality but this intoxication remains sober because Christ and the Holy Spirit belong together because this drunken speech stays totally within this one of the Logos in a new rationality that beyond all words serves a primordial word, capital W, the ground of all reasons. So, you know, again, synthetic here, you see, yeah, music is it's emotional, it's, it's powerful, uh, we get passionate about it. But it's not simply uh, unleashed, you know, undisciplined. It's got to be organized and ordered by logos, by reason, you know. Uh, there's a famous expression, I, I know Thomas uses it, I don't think he invented it, but rationis est ordinari. 
it belongs to reason to order things, you know. And so music is the ordering of sound. And I won't get into the whole Schoenborn stuff and the Schoenberg, not Schoenborn, sorry, Crystal, uh, about, you know, atonal music. Even that has some order to it. It does, actually. Uh, <laughs> Oddly but, enough, trying to get out yeah. of order, you just create another one, which <laughs> right. turns out to be not anything better than the thing you were trying to <laughs> replace. So I want to jump but, on. But, you know, oh, but, but, but just to make sure we understand this okay. use of rationality and reason, yeah. because the thing about music is that when you're experiencing it uh, as a listener, music is sort of bypassing the intellect. You can think about it later, but you're often not thinking about it while you're experiencing it. So the reason why it's so powerful is because here it's uniting you to the Logos and, and you're entering into the order of the Logos, which just is the real, and yet it's lifting you in a way out of your own thoughts, out of your own thoughts about even what you're doing. Unless, you know, obviously for a performer, that's a different experience. But but for a person who's just listening to music, you know, that that's just an amazing thing that well, you're going outside of yourself, but into the Logos. Well, and this is something which really relates to the Mass, because after the Council, there was an emphasis on the didactic character of the Mass. You have to understand everything. Don't use Latin because you don't understand what Latin is. But there are certain elemental things in life, of sacred language and music, which lift you up yeah. without you being able to understand with all clarity what it all is about. But but then you reflect on it later. Uh, but it 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 it's reasonable, but it takes you beyond mere reason. That, that's yes, yes, that that's or at least our reason anyway, which is just yeah, a beyond, small... beyond, beyond the human capacity to reason. Right, exactly. Reason himself. I do have one question, Father, before we move on from page 154, because I'm hoping you can elaborate. Um, about five lines down, six lines down, it says, for Christians, it is clear that Christ is the true David, which is obviously fair enough and true enough, but um, could you perhaps try to explain how it is that we should read, just read or sing the Psalms correctly, uh, if you like, through the perspective of Christ as the new David. All right. Well, of course, David is the one to whom the Psalms are attributed, even though he didn't write them all, but he did sing, he did write, and, and uh, that was part of his kingship, uh, his leadership of Israel. And Christ is in Moses, he's in new David, he's from the house of David. And so Christ is the one who incorporates in his own being and his life what David was as king, but also what David was as a singer. And so we know that Christ's own prayer was formed by the Psalter, that Mary's own prayer was formed, that he prayed it. That was his prayer. And we gave it to our Father, but also like at the Last Supper, what did they do? You read that, they sang the little hello, the great hello, Psalm 112, 118, and 136. So, uh, what, just like when we pray the rosary, we are actually praying with Mary because she reflected and still reflects on that great, you know, Ave Maria, Hail Mary, uh, and she reflects on the mysteries of Christ. We're, we're entering into her prayer when we pray the rosary. Uh, it's not just praying to her, it's praying kind of with her and in her. And as Augustine said, it was in yesterday's Office of Readings, uh, we pray to Christ as God, 
we pray with Christ and in Christ because we're the body of whom he is the head. So this is kind of a long answer to a short question, but uh, when we pray the Psalms, we are entering into the prayer of Christ and Mary, that is to say of the church. And we're not just praying for ourselves, we're praying for everyone and with everyone. I'm not sure that answers your question. Well, I think, I think it does, but I, I just want to, 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 to clarify here. So is the voice that's speaking in the Psalms the voice of Christ? Ah, it's an interesting thing. I just have my breather with him, but interesting in the Psalms, you have in the very same Psalm, you'll have uh, uh, God is great above all things. Uh, we love you. Well, first of all, God, you're not you're, you're not addressing God to begin with. You're addressing the community there, and then you're addressing God, and then you have God addressing you in the Psalms. So, uh, yeah, it's sometimes as Augustine says too. It's sometimes the voice of Christ. It's sometimes our voice to Him. It's sometimes the voice of God speaking to us. It's a conversation. Yeah. You know, I the other thing about David, if I may. You may. You know that line um only the lover sings and so david christ is the fulfillment of david as as king as as obedient son because as we know david wasn't always obedient but he repented with true remorse um as as prophet as priest because the king of israel was all of those things priest prophet and king right so he no, no that's not true no, no. because christ unites them but the, christ is the one who unites right, because, these three things yeah the, the, the king was not the priest but okay i know that those were not the prophet either the prophets and the priests and the king were okay. three separate orders so thank you for correcting me yes. so but they're united in christ they are united so the christ. kingly son that david is is United in Christ, along with these other things. That's right. Okay, so Christ is the fulfillment of all these things out of the old covenant. So David, though, this image of him as the lover of God who sings, even when he was a boy and his harp with the sheep and the whole nine yards, right? This longing for God, this love of God, his dancing before the Ark of the Covenant when it's brought into the city. I mean, we I think we see in David um, the, the seeds of all of these things that are fully made real in but, Jesus. But, and now but, we're supposed to enter into that too. Right. But they said, but the trickiness is uh, that when you read the Psalms, you do have to be discerning uh, the, the voice or voices, because it, as you say, even in one Psalm, uh, you know, it, it could be the, the voice of God speaking to us, the voice of us speaking to God or the God, the voice of Christ uh, speaking with us or for us. So it's, um, it's a little bit tricky, isn't it? That's, that's what I'm, yeah. It, it, Thomas, what do you say? <clears throat> Doesn't Augustine say that it's it's always Christ speaking? It's just Christ speaking in his head sometimes and Christ speaking in his body. That's right. The church. Uh, so it says even when the people are speaking, it's Christ. It's he's Christ. It's still Christ speaking. It's just Christ speaking in his body rather than That's head. exactly right. That's beautiful. So think but of Jesus. Surely in the penitential Psalms, however, when we are, we are confessing our miserable sinfulness, that can't be the voice of Christ. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating... 
Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Ah, but isn't it the voice of Christ? Because he's confessing our state on our behalf. So, you know, when Christ is on the cross, that is the ultimate act of confession oh, of, our, of our condition. But then, but then we have to take the first person somewhat literarily. Because you can't take it literally, because if, if Christ, if they're the words of Christ and it's the first person and it's about being a miserable sinner, then that, the, you have to be taking those words literally and not literally. I, I he's speaking to differ with for you. us uh, as our St. Paul, Paul says that he became sin for us. He became sin for us. Paul says he became sin for us. And so his lament is, is for, is for uh, sin, our sin. He doesn't share in our guilt, but he does bear the burden of our sin. And that, that's the mystery of confession that Audrey from Spire so beautifully describes is that Christ on the cross is actually making confession for us. Yes. Uh, by the way, he also quotes a psalm on the cross. He does. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? me. Uh, but on this thing about we have to be careful, uh, Joseph, uh, and this is going to extend this a little bit, but I think it's very important. Uh, I've got a lot of favorite verses in the Psalms, but one of them is from Psalm 9, 9a, as I call it now, I think. But uh, uh, <clears throat> may my th- I will sing to the Lord my life. May, uh, may, I'll make music to him uh, as long as I live. May my thoughts be pleasing to him. I find my delight in the Lord. Mm. The next line is, may all sinners perish from the earth. <laughs> 
You know, well, wait a minute. And that's not your favorite part? <laughs> no, no, no. no. But I, I always refer to Luke chapter 4, verses around 21, 22, where Jesus comes to the synagogue. They hand him the role of Isaiah. It, it's, it's a role of the book of Isaiah. And I think I've already said this at a session too, but I'm going to repeat it here because it's important to repeat and it fits here perfectly. Uh, there were no there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers in that scroll. It was just continuous Hebrew letters. But Jesus opens it up to what we now call chapter 61 of Isaiah, uh, verse one, and it, it and he he reads from verse one to 2a, I think it is, something like that. But he stops in the middle of the sentence because he says, you know, uh, he will, the lame will walk and the blind will see. It will be a year of grace. He stops there. And a day of vengeance. It's in the same verse, no punctuation. But when Jesus reads that prophecy, he only reads the first half about grace and glory, not about vengeance. So, Christ not only fulfills the Old Testament, he in a sense does a selection or a correction or a purification in the Old Testament. So likewise with the Psalms, and there's a famous verse of the Psalms, may the babies of my enemies have their heads smashed upon the rocks, you know. Well, no. You have, what do you do with that? You interpret it spiritually, you know. Like even the thing about may, may sinners perish. Well, I want sin to perish. I want my sin to perish. Mm-hmm. So it's true, Joseph, that when we read and pray and sing the Psalms, we, we can't simply identify with everything there the way it is. We have to filter that through you know Christ was, what he taught, what he did, and how he himself prayed. I actually have one more question. Sorry, as a follow-up. So I had a I mean, it's, 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 Go it's, ahead. I don't know if it's or not, but it's, I think it's good. Um, so last week I taught, I, I taught, TSL is the wasteland uh, uh, to a course I'm teaching for the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And the thing about the wasteland, of course, is lots of intertextuality where, you know, he, he just, one line of the poem is taken from another work. And the more that you understand the other work, the more you can read into the poem. So it, it, you know, the more literate you are, the more the poem is enriched by your knowledge of these other texts. So what for it, it, taking that as, as, as a launching pad, what... <laughs> Do we make of the, the words of Christ from the cross, from the psalm, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Are we meant to see those words in the light of the whole psalm? Because obviously there's a, there are allusions to the passion elsewhere in that psalm. So is is that legitimate? Is that meant, you know, are you meant to be reading intertextually in that sense? Yes. Now you are getting mm-hmm. into a very, very deep topic upon which there's some controversy. But I think the answer is an all-embracing yes in the sense that that psalm ends in a song of thanksgiving and praise for being, you know, uh, redeemed or being saved by God, you know. But did Jesus really mean I've been abandoned by the Father? Well, there's a whole theology of Holy Saturday, which uh, von Balthasar and based himself on the visions of Adam von Speyer, says that this is a mystery we'll never penetrate, but that Christ entered into our lives and he experienced on our behalf and for us in our place the consequences of sin. And what does sin do? It separates you from God. And so 
how, you know, we have to be very careful. We try and understand what the mind of Jesus was. But uh, I do believe that there is a defensible position which says we take that intertextual aspect that this is a psalm that ends in praise of God and therefore a song of faith and love of God, but it's also a song of abandonment uh, where Christ reached that point of death, which is a separation, and he experienced what the punishment is for sin, which is separation from God. Now, not all people hold that, Some, especially strict homo, so we had the beatific vision, you know? So he had the beatific vision at all times? Well, yes, he did. He was God. He was son of God. What did that mean? We don't know. This is the whole question of the knowledge of Jesus, for example. Did Jesus know Greek? You know, yeah, he probably knew Greek. Did he know Chinese? Probably not. Did he know how to program in Python? You know, I I, I would say no. But there's some who say, well, of course he did. He was God. He knows everything. So that, that question, Joseph, is a very important question. It's an intertextuality thing. Um, but uh, it takes us. Not, I would say sure. far afield, but pretty deep. Well, I, that, 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 I find that very helpful. So thank you. And I'm obviously hoping that those uh, th those watching and listening will as well. But I, I, I thanks for elaborating. I appreciate it. All right. They can always, always push the fast forward to some of these things. You know? <laughs> so on page 156-142 in my old edition here, uh, two-thirds down, the singing of the church comes ultimately out of love. It is the utter depth of love that produces singing. Cantare amantes est, literally, to sing of a lover is, says St. Augustine. Singing is a lover's thing. In so saying, we come again to the Trinitarian interpretation of church music. So that's again, I mean, he's he bringing everything together here. Um, let's see. A Holy Spirit is love. There we go. Yeah. And it is he who produces the singing, he who produces the singing. So that beautiful line from St. Paul, when I don't even know how to pray, it's the Holy Spirit who gives utterance. Yeah. And I, again, the, the page preceding that, about the Song of Songs, about basically uh, the whole imagery of the marriage, Christ referring to himself as the bridegroom. So, you know, we can see scripture in this, in this sense in some ways, a love song, right? Um, yeah. And let's, what we're moving towards now is uh, what does this have to do with the celebration of Mass? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, it's important to keep in mind where we're heading here, uh, what kind of music we should have at Mass, at Mass, and what kind of music should be the Mass. Mm. Page 157 in the middle, very important here. Thus, bottom of that paragraph. Thus, in the musical sphere, biblical faith created its own form of culture, an expression appropriate to its inward essence. Here we go again. One that provides a standard for all later forms of enculturation. So this idea of, well, we have to enculture the mass, you know, let's have a, let's have a folk mass, let's have a pol polka mass. Well, wait a second. The, the, the liturgy has created its own culture, and you so there's a kind of dialect here between the culture, which is part of the inner essence of the liturgy, and the surrounding culture of the world. How can those be blended or brought into relation to each other? It's a delicate question, and it doesn't have a clear answer. 
because it's not it's one of those human things that doesn't have a mathematical answer. Nevertheless, this is a very important principle. The biblical faith created its own form of culture and expression appropriate to its inward essence. That's and it's a standard for everything else. That that's that's a key text there. Yeah, he does in the following pages, you know, talk about different types of music, uh, you know, that, uh, and, you know, e even those of us that might like some rock music, you know, the point is that uh, it's, it's clearly not appropriate for the sacred liturgy, yeah, even if it's, even if it's appropriate for our own, should we say, secular lives, our own profa profane time, um, you know, that, that, that it doesn't mean it's suitable for, for the, the, the liturgy. So it's, I think, again, it's the, you know, that doesn't mean because something's not suitable for the liturgy, and therefore it's not suitable, period, right? right. It might, right. might be fine to dance the poker, but you right. don't want to dance the poker down the central aisle for, for communion, right? Um, right. So I was going to say that because sometimes rock music gets treated differently for different reasons other than the point you're making another example like the polka would be like the waltz the waltz is beautiful music and elevating music but it's dance music right. it's not worship music it never was intended oh. to be worship music so think you know oh, think you're against sacred dance no <laughs> <laughs> i do not want to wear a gown and white gloves and waltz down the aisle when i go to mass <laughs> or it's like I, I'm, I'm again trying to learn the banjo, not very successfully. But while I love playing the banjo, I would never want to play it at mass. I mean, it, I, and I can't, I can tell you why, but I just, I can know it's not the right instrument for mass. You know? Right. Yeah. And yet, in a pinch, so so you always have to be careful about oh, understanding. Like classical, you know? No, no, like understanding these principles is so important, which is why this book is so important. Let's lay the ground with the principles. Lay the principles on the ground. Good. But then you always have to be careful about not entering into kind of rigidity. So, for example, you think of that beautiful song, Silent Night, on Christmas Eve in some German Bavarian village. The organ was broken and the organist picked up his guitar and composed Silent Night. So you don't want to say, oh, my heavens, we can't ever have a guitar. Well, you know, maybe it's not the no maybe it shouldn't be normative. Maybe it shouldn't definitely be rock music, but you know, is anyone going to object to the hymn Silent Night? Okay. And then you see, so anyway. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I also, I, when I was in Oxford two weeks ago, uh, I didn't go to the concert, but I could hear it from outside. There's performers at the Sheldonian Theatre of Verdi's Requiem, you know, and again, that's beautiful music, but it sounds like opera. Because um, it so is. <laughs> it's beautiful, it's to, to be performed, right? Exactly. It's, it's not to be part of the sacred liturgy, as, right. as beautiful as it is. Yes. Well, let me, on this very point, it's, it's on page 159 now, towards the bottom, uh, talks about the case so-called parody masses, in which the text of the mass was set to a theme or melody that came from secular music, with the result that anyone hearing it might think he was listening to the latest hit. Well, you mentioned Silent Night. Uh, I love the Carmelites of Crystal Ray in San Francisco, and they were very generous to us for 27 years, letting us use the house next door they owned for our offices. And our chapel for your daily and, masses. And our, our chapel for mass. But I stopped doing Christmas mass there because they would sing uh, the Latin parts of the mass uh, to Christmas carols. And so, for example, Silent Night, 
I couldn't stand that, you know. <laughs> so you just shaved some time off of purgatory by prank, by remaining in your yeah, in your chasuble. <laughs> so that, but Silent Night again. It's a beautiful hymn. Yes. Uh, sung at mass, but also sung at the Christmas carol. You dip through the streets. It's right. Beautiful too. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this answers a question. This this part that you just quoted. Yeah. Remember when we had Michael Couric? Is that his name? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this question actually came up. So like Beethoven's Mass, was that ever meant to be performed in church? And the answer here is no. That when these secular composers uh, set their style of music, set the mass to their style of music or whatever, those were performed in orchestra halls and opera houses and so on. That wasn't meant for worship. It was meant as an art form. And so... Our reaction to it that you just described, Joseph, is spot on. I must say that Monsignor Schuller, a happy memory from St. Paul, Minnesota, and St. Agnes Parish, he was a professional conductor himself. So he, he would celebrate, it's a celebrant, he would celebrate the 8 o'clock Mass. And because his church was uh, was kind of an Austro-Hungarian, you know, colony when it first started, uh, he thought that they had a role to preserve the musical tradition of of the great composers. So the 11 o'clock mass would be uh, Handel's mass or something like that. But he did it in such a way that you knew you were coming to mass. This is mass. But we're going to have the curie and so on. And it was. Uh, did it work? It, I, th I think it worked. I mean, but it was done very, very reverently. And people knew this is not the normal mass on Sunday. This is going to be mass with this right. setting. But again, as Aristotle says, in things human, it's always true for the most part. So right. like you say, you know, you don't expect to go to your parish church and have a three-hour mass, you know, with a, a Mozart mass. or something like that. Because I actually went to a Mozart mass in the birthplace of Mozart. Glenn and I both went, and it was beautiful. And yes, uh, they attempted to have the reverence appropriate to the liturgy and so on. But literally after the mass, I turned to Glenn and I said, do we need to go to Mass again so that I really pray? <laughs> I mean, I was sort of teasing, but, you know, there is this, mm, it's an interesting balance to keep that the Mass doesn't become just a performance. Yeah, the, but it really the holy, comes out holy, of prayer. The holy silence and serenity uh, instance are, you know, of the prayers of the Mass, particularly, you know, um, uh, the words of consecration, you know, you wouldn't want that to be upstaged, would you? I mean, you're just by the by the beauty of of, of the music that's all around it. It, it, it. The climax of the mass should be, you know, the consecration and and and, and immediately before and immediately after, right? So, um, so yeah, yeah, it's all speaking all about speaking about upstaged. Just out of curiosity's sake, I watched John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy's funeral mass you can find it on youtube and of course it's the it's the older form of the mass before vatican ii and it was so here during the confidior which is being said by the cardinal and the acolytes an opera singer is singing ave maria <laughs> now i love ave maria i love opera but you know what that just was a complete disconnect as far as yeah. i was concerned <laughs> That way. And there were other places where talking about the, mu the music, well, of course, 
what the Cardinal and the Acolytes were doing wasn't really meant really to be heard by the congregation. So the music was just completely like take like this is what the people are doing and what is happening in the sanctuary is something else. And it was really kind of jarring, uh, this experience. Yeah. Yes, that, and, that, and that was something that happened in the mass prior to the council because it was in land. People didn't know it, even had missiles and so on, but it was said quietly. People would be making a devotional prayer to St. Joseph, praying the rosary or something, but they would not be participating in the national mass itself. That's right. And it I, comes across pretty clearly when you watch this. Joseph, uh, I want to recall something you and I experienced. When we were at Ave Maria back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, I taught the students to sing the simple Kyrie and Agnus Dei and Sanctus and so on. And after, you know, a week or two, they all knew it by heart. And I've never had that kind of singing mess where the whole congregation is singing a simple chant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's the mass being sung by everyone. That was to me, it was, I'll never forget that. It was very beautiful. Well, it was very beautiful. And, and it was you that introduced me. Uh, when I, had been, I had been to know the sort of Latin masses before, but, um, but you really introduced me to the beauty of it, I mean, partly because of that, partly because of the participation of the congregation in the sung parts of the mass in Latin, in that simple chant, which everybody could learn very quickly, and then, and then just, be, you know, you don't have to remind yourself it's there. Uh, every time you go to mass, so yeah, that I you greatly enriched me, and I'm sure that's true also of the students that were there at the time, and all of us at Ignatius Press. We've all been the beneficiaries of this. Well, and then, why don't we conclude this session here? We'll finish it next time, and we'll go celebrate mass. How's that? Uh, oh, sounds guess? great. All right, thanks everyone. See you next time. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion. Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.